0: You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. This morning we're continuing our, our sermon series through Galatians today, and uh, as we read this passage, uh, you'll all soon find out that we've we've found ourselves in a section of Galatians which has a lot going on. There's there's a lot going on in this passage that we're going to be reading. So So much going on that that it'll be hard for for me to fully cover it all in such a short time. So, but we are, however, currently studying through Galatians and through this passage in particular uh, this week in our community groups. So on that note, I'd encourage you all to get involved with one if you aren't involved with one, and uh, if you want more information on that, you can talk to me, you can talk to Pastor Blair, and we'll get you plugged into to community groups. It's a great time, um, uh, a great opportunity to, to study through the word. And, uh, speaking of which, one of the things that I love about our community groups next to the primary fact that we do get to study the word together and grow together and pray together. Um, and, and also, uh, besides the fact that one of the community groups this last week decided to bless all the pastors with baking and encouragement cards, and, and even encouragement cards made by the kids, which were my favorite, I love them, uh, they, they made me feel really good. So <laughs> I really appreciate that, so thank you to that community group that, that, that did that, um, it's amazing. Um, but besides those things that are awesome about community groups, another thing I love about the way that our community groups are set up is that there's no partiality or segregation in our groups. At least there shouldn't be. I hope there isn't. I mean, I haven't inve- investigated every group, but that's, that's the way they're set up, right? So each each group is a mix of of ages, of, of people in different stages of life, singles, married, young adults, um, seniors, mature, new Christians, Right people of cultural backgrounds and diverse upbringings. You know, you know the, the list goes on. That, that's how they're set up. They're, they're set up to be open to anyone and everyone. And that's such a beautiful picture of the unifying power of the gospel. And so, so I love that, uh, that our community groups are expressing that. And um, as we've been talking about in Galatians over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how the gospel isn't just for the, for the Jews, the promise of God isn't just for the Jews, right? Or, and, and it's not for those who, who do the works of the law of Moses, but it's for anyone who believes by faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of race or gender or, or age or education or sh- social status or, or the amount of works that you do. It's for anyone who believes in faith in, by faith in Jesus Christ. So, and, and as Paul's been explaining to us, we can be confident in this salvation. In the saving faith, primarily because of the covenant promise which God made to Abraham and his descendants—a promise, a promise of blessing—which was ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So that's why we can be confident in that. Hebrews 6 uh, sums that up, but I'm going to read a couple of verses: Hebrews 6:13 to 14, and and then we'll jump to 19 to 20. It says it like this: For For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Because of that, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. So, in other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. And Jesus is the one who gives us access to and relationship with a holy God. Therefore, it's through faith in Jesus that we get to inherit the promise of blessing. It's through Christ in us that we can have this confidence in our faith, a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a sure hope in our salvation and life with God. And this is the topic that that we're jumping into right now as we continue through Galatians in chapter 3, starting at verse 15. We're basically going to get a theology lesson this morning. So, I don't know, pretend you're in a Bible college class or something. Uh, Get ready to take notes. Um, Because what we'll be learning uh, and, and reading in our passage today is that the Apostle Paul, again, is arguing that since God made a covenant promise to Abraham, Nothing that came after it, including the law of Moses, can change it or alter it. But he recognizes as well that the conclusion he's making here, that that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, it also then begs the question, what's what's the point of the law of Moses? What was it for and how are we supposed to read that today? Uh, So he'll be logically and theologically answering that for us in this passage as well. Uh, and I'm going to try, try my best to explain it to you. Um, God willing, we'll, we'll understand the Holy Spirit is, is working in us, so um, that's that's good. Um, because, again, there's a lot going on here. You know, Paul, Paul's basically alluding to and drawing from the whole narrative history of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah. So, yes. There's a lot going on. Uh, and with all that being said, and hopefully you're still following this, uh, but either way, please turn with me now to Galatians 3:15 to 29, and we'll read through that. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to and pleading with the Galatian Church. Galatians 3:15 to29. He says to them, "Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and then cancel the promise, for if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not, just, not for just one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law, then, was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. It's God's word. Amen. Told you there was a lot going on. Um, we'll try to go through this now. Um, when I was four years old, I was still living in Kamloops, B.C., a place much warmer than here, and I uh, wouldn't mind being there right now. Um, but when, when 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 I lived there when I was four, I remember going to daycare when my parents were at work. I'd be dropped off at daycare. And I also remember spending part of my mornings at daycare, sitting on the dreaded time-out chair in the corner of the room. Mostly because I was airheaded and not really rebellious. I just wasn't, wouldn't pay attention, wouldn't listen, right? Um, I swear. But there's this one day in particular, which I remember well, uh, when us kids were told to go wash our hands before snack time. And while we were doing that, me and this girl named Nicole, who was my best friend at the time, we decided to smear all the, all the white soap residue all over our faces so that we'd look like clowns. Um, we, we thought that'd be funny, and, uh, and it was. And so we ran around showing all the other kids how we looked like clowns because we had this white soap residue all over our faces. Uh, but I guess our daycare leaders weren't too impressed with our sense of humor. And the next thing I know, I, I uh, found myself sitting in that chair once again for my time out. But as I look back now, as an adult, I understand the daycare's need for rules and discipline. It was because they were responsible for for our safety and health in place of our parents. From the moment I was signed in until the moment my mom came to pick me up, the daycare workers were my guardians, and they were responsible then to create a safe, healthy, and clean atmosphere for all of us children. So in, in order to create that kind of atmosphere so that our parents didn't show up to find us missing or hurt or hungry or crying or dead, right, they, there, there had to be rules and boundaries. And of course, we, we had to stay there, right? We, had, we, couldn't, we weren't allowed to leave. We had to stay there until we were signed out by our parents. And this, in a sense, is kind of like what the law of Moses was given to the Israelites for. In fact, Paul even says that the law was like a guardian for God's people. Verses 23 to 24, he says, Before this faith came, we were confined under the law. We were confined under the law. They couldn't leave, right? Imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. So let me explain even further. In the Greek culture at that time, many families had slaves within their home who would take on the role as, as a guardian for their children, for, for the children of, of, of their owners. So these slaves are like nannies or, or daycare workers, in a sense, and they would be responsible for, for raising, teaching, feeding, disciplining, and keeping the children safe and healthy until the parents could take over for the day or until the children reached adulthood. So these guardians weren't the parents, but they were placeholders for them. And in the same way, Paul explains here, the law of, of Moses was not the fulfillment of God's blessing. Rather, it was a placeholder until the coming faith was revealed. It was only meant to be a guardian for the Israelites and keep them there until, if I may, God the Father could finally sign them out of their daycare for the last time through the blood of Jesus. In other words, once Christ came into the picture, the law was no longer required in that sense. But in in order to get a a better understanding of what's going on here, uh, and as a result hopefully help us as well uh, whenever we read through the Old Testament and read through the Torah, I want to take a moment to, to go through the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then after that I'm going to talk about what the law of Moses is, and why God gave it to the Israelites hundreds of years later. Like I said, it's going to be like a Bible college course, okay? Um, so in the book of Genesis, we're we're given an account of the genealogy of, of Noah and his sons, and I know you guys have read through that, right? Okay. Uh, no? Okay. I'll help you out then. One of his sons' names was Shem, and um, one of Shem's descendants was a man named abram and this is where the story of god's covenant begins right after the genealogy right god approaches abram seemingly out of the blue but we know that it's by god's sovereign grace that he approaches abram who would later be called abraham and then the following event occurs genesis 12 verse 1 to 3 now the lord said to abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abram many things here. God promises abram blessing that his name will be great that his his, his name will become a, a great nation right that those who bless him will be blessed that those who dishonor him will be cursed but finally and most importantly that through him through this blessing all the families of the earth shall be blessed as well so first of all then god's plan even then even, even all the way back then, wasn't just to bless one nation, Israel, but to use that nation to bring blessing to families of all nations. Secondly, we need to recognize that this was God's covenant to Abraham. This was God's covenant to Abraham. This, this was a covenant of grace. And this is important for us to understand Because normally when when we think of contracts and covenants, there's there's two people involved, right? Two people making an agreement with one another, and they'll they'll make decisions with one another and and write it out together. But no, this was God's covenant directly to Abraham. Abraham didn't contribute to the promise. Abraham didn't ask for anything, right, and say, well, actually, can you change it and, and adjust it this way? No, Abraham didn't contribute to the promise, nor did God put any conditions on it for Abraham to meet. God simply chose Abraham and promised what he would do for him and for the world through his descendants. In other words, the foundation of this covenant was the faithful and unwavering promise of God. In fact, even when the covenant was ratified, Abraham was asleep. As is recorded in Genesis 15, God passed through the altar on behalf of both parties. So we, we need to understand this. Back then, two parties that made a serious agreement would walk down an aisle between sacrificed animals together to, to signify the binding seriousness of their agreement and to basically imply that if they broke the agreement, they'd become as these sacrificed animals. Okay? So th- this is where, where we get the tradition, actually, of, of, of a husband and wife walking down the aisle at the end of a wedding. Ceremony—it's it's a reflection of God's covenant with us. It signifies the seriousness of the covenant of marriage. That's, that's why we get the walking down the aisle. But in this case, in this in this in this case, Abraham fell asleep, and and while he was asleep, God passed through it on His own, representing both parties. Signifying to us both the seriousness of his promise and also that he would take on the responsibility of Abraham's, of humanity's side of it as well. Which Jesus ultimately did at the cross when he became like those sacrificed animals, when he became our sacrifice, right? What a beautiful picture. So, so God ratified it unto himself. As we read earlier in Hebrews, God had nothing greater to swear this promise by, so he swore by himself. So, so the point here is that God's covenant was made in promise. And its purpose was ultimately meant for peoples of all nations to receive that blessing. Hopefully you're, you're following so far, but there's, there's more to it. As Paul reminds the Galatians in verse 16 here, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The uh, Apostle Peter said something similar in his first sermon during that, that day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 3.25, when he says to them, You are the sons of the prophets and of the, of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, so in these instances, both Peter and Paul are most likely alluding to Genesis 3, where God talks about the, the seed to, to Adam and Eve, but, but more likely referencing Genesis 22, 17 to 18, when God tells Abraham again, more specifically concerning the promise, when he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So the key word here is offspring. right? Paul and Peter now understand that, that it's referring to, to one. It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the Messiah. So the, the promise was always pointing to Jesus. That's what, they're, that's what they're telling us here. The promise is always pointing to Jesus. And, and 430 years before the law was given, God once again reiterated this promise to Jacob, the son of Isaac, the only son of Abraham, because it would be Jacob's descendants who would inherit the law as the nation of Israel and carry that promise. The law would keep them, Right? The law would be their guardian until they inherited that promise. And most of us know the story after after that. Uh, Of course, when God used Moses to rescue his people from exile in Egypt, and then immediately after that, God gave Moses the law, starting with the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then continually gave him more of the law. And in total, it's, it's generally agreed that depending on how you decide to count them, but it's generally agreed that the law contains 613 commands from God that his people were to follow, 613. And so this law is comprised of the Ten Commandments, moral laws, food and kosher laws, purity laws, uh, festivals, other instructions for life, sacrifices, and priesthood, and the list goes on. But... As Paul points out to the Galatians, this Mosaic law, which was given by God, and though good in its own way, was not ever meant to replace or satisfy the promise of God, that covenant that God made with Abraham. The law was given for a different purpose. Besides, he argues, God made a covenant promise. And once a covenant has been made and signed and ratified, no other parties can change it or make um, amendments to it, right? That's illegal. So this is why he writes in verses 15 to 18 when he says, brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Again, the law that was given by God, right, does not change or ratify and especially doesn't fulfill the promise. That's the, what he's saying. And, and, and that's the way it is with, with our contracts and, and our covenants today, too, as well, right? If they're signed and, and shaken upon by both parties involved in the contract, then it's legally binding and, and it can't be changed unless both original parties agree to it. So, and, and in the same way, neither is the contract finished unless what's stated in the contract has been accomplished, right? So if our human contracts are that binding, then think of how much more God's covenant promise to Abraham is. That, that's Paul's point here. God made a covenant through promise and therefore no one or nothing can change it or replace it. And if it was meant to be fulfilled through the law, then it would, be no, then it would no longer be based on, on what God promised to do, right? It, it would be based on what we have to do to get it. But that wasn't part of God's promise. God said, I will do this through you. He didn't say, as long as you guys do a bunch of stuff. No, he said, I will do this through you. So no, it's not through the law that we receive the promise, but through faith in Jesus who said himself in Matthew five, seventeen, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Another thing Paul points out about the difference between the law and the promise is that the promise was given by God Himself, and the law was given through a mediator, through angels, through a mediator, which which the mediator was Moses, right? Verse 19 to 20 says the, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. So again, when, when God made the promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. When he gave the law, it was through angels. It was through Moses, which means others were involved in the process, right? It was, it, it was based on what others did as well, not just what God would do. So, so the promise was more binding, Paul's saying, the covenant promise was more binding because it was straight from God alone. He did it personally and unto himself because it was all about what he would do, not what we have to do. In that sense, the covenant is greater than the law because no mediator was required. I need some water. Hopefully you guys are following this. Okay. So again, though, we see that the law doesn't replace the promise. But again, then that begs the question, why the law? Why did God give them the law? Why the Ten Commandments? What's And, and all those other things. What are they for? What's the purpose? Like like when we're reading through the Torah and, and the, the first, again, those are the first five books of the Bible. And the Torah is translated as law. It's called the law. When we're reading through that narrative, right, we get to, to Numbers or Deuteronomy or Leviticus and, and we start getting confused, right? And, and we're like, okay, I was, I was following the stuff in Egypt and even the stuff in the desert. I get that. I understand kind of what's going on. But now, you know, as you're starting to fall asleep, reading through these laws and genealogies, you start thinking, you know, what in the world is going on here, right? And that's a good question. What's the, the point of all these laws? Especially for us today, we, we, we look at them and we're like, what is going on here? Well, first of all, Paul writes, the law was given because of sin and constant rebellion. The law was given because of sin and constant rebellion. Verse 19, he says, why then was the law given? He knows everyone's thinking it, right? So he's he's going to answer that question. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So the law was added because of transgressions. God's people, you have to understand, God's people were just as hard-hearted and sinful as the rest of the world. And the only way to keep them set apart from the world as God's people was to instruct them and tell them how to live, how to be set apart, how to honor God, how to love one another. In the same vein, though, it was also given to reveal their sin and hard hearts. Verses verses 21 to 22. Is, Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so the common misconception among among the religious was that by following the law, you know, by by doing good works, by following the law, then you could find eternal life that you could find righteousness by doing all doing all the things that was laid out in the law but if that was the case then it would be contrary to the promise of god right we've talked about that it would be contrary to the promise of god the promise of god says nothing about what we're supposed to do rather than the law actually the purpose of it was actually to reveal our inability to measure up to god it actually reveals our sin and as moses calls it our hardened hearts he called out the people of god and said you have hard hearts you can't follow the law in order in order to follow god we need to have changed hearts and the law shows us that the other day audrey and i we asked our boys to clean their rooms and uh, about 30 minutes later one of them comes out of his room beaming with pride and confidence telling us that that he's done cleaning his room and that we should come and inspect how clean it is so we're like all right that was quick 30 minutes well done we're excited so we walk into the room there were still clothes on the floor there were toys shoved along the wall there were like little pieces of ripped paper everywhere i don't know what's going on there um but the thing is, my, my like, like, his, his room wasn't clean at all, right? I was like, it's not even clean in here, what are you talking about? But, but the thing is, my son honestly and actually thought that his room was clean. He wasn't trying to lie to us, he actually thought his room was clean. He was so confident in that. Until that is, I pointed out all the things that he missed. And that's what the law does to us, right? Maybe we think we're good and that we measure up and that we're righteous and we're so confident in that. That is until we start comparing ourselves with the law. Until the law starts pointing out all the ways that we've fallen short. And the truth is that 613 laws are actually really difficult to follow. That's a lot of laws to follow, right? It's, it's pretty much impossible. Which is exactly why there were also instructions for sacrifices and, and times of repentance. It was actually expected that no one could follow it. In that sense, the law cooperates with God's promise in reminding us of our need for that promise's fulfillment, of our need for Jesus, of our need for that perfect sacrifice to change our hearts so that we can truly follow God. As Warren Wiersbe writes, it is here that we see the way that law and grace cooperate in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. Law shows the sinner his guilt and grace shows him the forgiveness we can have in Christ. The law is holy, just, and good as it says in Romans 7-12, but the law does not make us sinners. It reveals to us that we already are sinners. So the law shows us that we're sinners, but it shows us in the same vein our need for a Savior. It isn't meant as a replacement for the Savior. It's pointing us to the Savior. It was never meant to be the replacement because it can't change our hearts. It was... It was only meant to be for that people in that time until Jesus came to truly change our hearts. As, as, as Paul wrote in verse 19, until the seed should come. Until the seed should come. The law was there until the seed should come. I, I was listening uh, to, to a, a podcast by some biblical scholars about the Mosaic law. And uh, they pointed out that there are some really weird laws and and how we don't really understand them uh, in our t- in our day and age right and 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 that a lot of the time the reason for our lack of understanding is because the specific meanings and purpose of these laws have actually been lost over time one law for example which is re- repeated multiple times it's one of the laws that's repeated the most in the in the torah says that you can't cook a baby goat in its mother's milk isn't that a weird law that's so strange. You you can laugh. That's weird. Um, <laughs> and and we could read that in, our, in in our day and age, and we can interpret it according to our culture, and 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 say, okay, you know, this is probably a law that's against animal cruelty or something, right? Which definitely could have been part of its purpose. I mean, it's certainly cruel to cook an animal in the same liquid that gave it life, right? That's pretty cruel. Um, so we could totally interpret it that way. Uh, But but the crazy thing is is that recently uh, an archaeological dig discovered documents from an ancient Babylonian civilization. And one of these documents was about cooking rituals, which instructed these Babylonians to, you guessed it, cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. Isn't that crazy? So in other words, this, this kosher mosaic law, that sounds so weird to us was actually given by God to his people as a practical way to set them apart from their neighbors and enemies. Isn't that crazy? But we look at that and we're like, what? This doesn't make any sense to us. Because it's not for us. Right? It's it's no wonder then that that its meaning was lost over time because, because it wasn't meant specifically for us. But that's the point. That's the point. Since Jesus fulfilled the requirements and judgment of the law, it isn't meant for us today in this time. Which is also why there's no more temple, right? Or curtain within the temple that leads to the Holy of Holies. There's no more Holy of Holies. God doesn't have to hide in there anymore. There's no altar for sacrifices anymore. There's, there, there's, there's no priesthood. There's no king or animal sacrifices. There's none of that anymore because Jesus fulfilled them all. They've all been put away and fulfilled through Christ. In fact, if you read through the book of Hebrews, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It, 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 it highlights all those things and shows how Christ is better and the perfect completion of all of them. I would encourage you to read it. Read it and weep. Seriously, read it and weep for For joy for thankfulness, for for how amazing Jesus is. Anyways, where were we, right? The, the The promise is eternal, but the law was always meant to be temporary. The promise is eternal, but the law was always meant to be temporary, and ultimately, it was meant to prepare the way for Christ. As I mentioned before, it was a guardian, right, meant to teach and instruct and prepare God's people for the eternal blessing that would come through Jesus. Excuse me. And uh, Warren Wiersbe, again, he sums it up well. He says, the law cannot change the promise, and the law is not greater than the promise, but the law is not contrary to the promise. They work together to bring sinners to the Savior. And in conclusion, then, Paul reminds us that the promise fulfilled accomplishes much more than the law ever could. The promise fulfilled accomplishes much more than the law ever could. Verses 25 to 29. He writes this, But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. And there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. When we believe in Jesus through faith, we become adopted as sons of God. No longer taken care of by this this guardian. No longer under the law anymore, but accepted and adopted into the family of God. And I want to note here that the word sons, it doesn't imply that we all become males, okay? (laughs) But rather, in in those days, it was the sons who received the inheritance of their fathers. So so simply put, this is the implication. here. This is what he's saying, that through Christ, we all become as Abraham's seed, Heirs to the promise of God, and and there's more. He, he writes more. Where the law reveals our sin and our hard heart, Jesus alone overcomes that sin through the cross and freely gives us a new heart. When we're baptized into Christ, our sinful self and and our and, and, and is put to death, and we're given the, the garment of Christ. We we wear Christ's righteousness, His life, His Spirit. And where the law was meant as as a placeholder, the promise of God through Christ is eternal. And where the law was given for specific people in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in him. In other words, because of Jesus, there's no distinction or, or reservations or partiality in who can receive the promise of God, which is beautiful, which is our hope, right? And this is the ultimate fulfillment and picture of the new covenant of the gospel that because of the cross, families of all nations can receive the blessing that through faith we are one in Jesus, all and any who believe in. And the saving grace of Jesus Christ by faith can be saved and become heirs in the kingdom of God.